0: The Houston Asian American Archive collects individual oral histories, making
1: these stories accessible in the forms of recordings and transcripts. Our heritage, speaking for itself. Discover how your heritage fits into the story of Houston at haaa.rice.edu.
2: Dear Houston, Happy Valentine's Day, and welcome to this very special love theme podcast, When Haru Meets Savi, Love Stories from the Houston Asian American Archive. I'm your host for today, Enshi, and we're going to hear stories from members of the Asian American community about their experiences with and feelings about love. Love is, of course, a broad subject and one opens to all kinds of interpretations. That's why we've tried to incorporate stories old and new that resonate across time, space, and culture to explore the quantum entanglements, or are they just hormones? that can sometimes conjure up butterflies in our stomachs through a mere glance from across the crowded room. We'll hear stories that speak to both unorthodox and traditional notions of love. Stories of forbidden love, love at first sight, and love preordained. We'll ask the question, can we as Asian Americans be in love as who we are? And more broadly, can any of us be in love as who we are? But let's not get ahead of ourselves, let's sit back and listen to love tell its own
3: story.
2: Love at first sight is our most romantic notion and one that transcends geography culture, and for the most part, common sense. Who hasn't been instantly enamored by a total stranger, only to discover we've fallen in love with an ideal, or even a mannequin, at Nima Marcus? I have to confess that is only partially a joke. But in some cases, love at first sight lives up to its lofty name, and even sustains itself, sometimes against incredible odds. Our first love story features back home Ji, who was born in a small village in China in 1922.
4: Okay, let's see now. I arrived, I arrived in San Francisco uh, after about 23 days on the ship coming from Hong Kong to San Francisco. I spent b- about 30 days on Angel Island alone at the age of nine until I w- had passed all the questioning and been allowed to come on to the mainland. And I stayed in San Francisco f- f- for a few weeks. And I ended up joining my grandparents in Algiers, Louisiana, which is across this uh, uh, river from New Orleans. And I started school there. And uh, a couple of years later, in 1954, I moved to Mississippi, where I when my schooling stopped, because Mississippi had a law that prohibited Chinese children from going to school, to a white public school and i worked from the age of thirteen until i was 20 years old when i got drafted into world war ii
2: mr g was drafted into the u.s army as a photographer he trained for a year in the states before arriving in england in 1943 where he was stationed for 10 months this was followed by a year stationed in france and finally four months in germany Despite bearing witness to and documenting the horror of war, Ji, who sadly passed away in June of 2020, always maintained that one scene stood out among them all.
4: I arrived in England in November of 1943. And on New Year's Day, I was stationed in Manchester, England. Another Chinese soldier and I decided that New Year's Day would be a good time to go and find a good Chinese restaurant and have a good meal. So, Liverpool was one hour's bus ride away. So, he and I got on a bus and went to Liverpool. And we asked the bus driver to drop us off as close to Chinatown as possible, and he dropped us right in Chinatown. We went to The first restaurant, it was crowded. didn't have room for us. We went to another restaurant, same thing. We went to the the third restaurant packed. We started walking out, and the waiter came running after us, and said, we got two people leaving. So we went back and sat at a little table for two, and it so happens that I sat facing a large round table with six or seven people, and when I look up, there was a young girl, woman, who was, who was staring at each other. And as I was eating, and she was eating, we, we looked up, we kept staring at each other. So finally, she went to the front door for something, so I told my friend I'd I'll be right back. <laughs> so I walked over to the front door, introduced myself, and got out my little black book. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I asked her if we could Get, get to know each other or whatever I said. I don't know what I said. Anyway, she said, you come back and meet my mother and see what she said. Yeah. Start was her mother at the table. So uh, she said, "Told my mother. Uh, and as much she asked me what my name was, and I couldn't tell her my real name because we had been advised not to get involved with the local people. So I didn't know what to do. I said, we just called me Johnny, Johnny Doughboy." The girl's
2: name was Joyce, a half Chinese, half Caucasian British girl. Her mother was not amused that her daughter had brought an American GI to the table, much less one named Johnny Dole Roy.
4: But then she softened, she said, you can come home meet her father and then ask him. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it, what am I going to lose? So, okay, so I told I told my friends, I'll see you back at camp. <laughs> so I followed them. Oh well, I met the father. And by that time, oh, uh the time it passed, it was evening time, it was dinner time. They were having dinner, so they invited me to stay for dinner. <laughs> and after dinner was, uh, the buses stopped running. So it was blackout time, wartime. The buses quit running when they had their lights, because nobody, no cars can run with lights. So I had to en- end up spending the night at the English uh, uh, Red Cross type of a, you know, for soldiers. So I spent the night there, and the next morning I found my way back to the house, and um, I started asking if I could come back again. And they just so I keep going back, and in uh, July of that summer, we were supposed to get married the same week as D-Day, but I didn't know that D-Day was going to happen on June the sixth. We were scheduled to get married on June the tenth because nobody was able to leave the base because uh, we were invading France. So we postponed our wedding till July the 29th. So we got married and we, met, we got married and we stayed married until she died at age 79.
2: From a romantic story of a love at first sight, we're going to pivot in another direction to a love story some might consider less romantic, but certainly no less enduring than that of Beck and Joyce G. Punam and Atua Sahocha met each other through their parents in an arranged marriage. Their first two meetings were with both families, and the third time on their wedding day. They have been married for over 30 years. As first-generation Asian Americans and from traditional families who believed in arranged marriage, Both Mr. and Mrs. Sahodra found the open way of dating and courtship a little daunting in the context of their upbringing.
5: Made a conscious decision to go this route. You know, dating is clearly very common it's easily available, but I I did have reservations about it, because in the Indian culture, dating, especially for women, was considered to be a very negative thing, that if you were dating, that, you know, perhaps your morals were not so so high, and, um, you know, and of course, I was reminded of that, too, by my parents, that if you do end up doing a lot of dating, then then you should probably plan to marry that way and not try to marry the arranged system way because, you know, it just doesn't work that way, especially especially where women are concerned. You know, it is a it, it was a little bit different for men versus women, but um, that's that's kind of the the way that we were raised. And I knew that I wanted to marry someone Indian and preferably someone from India because I wanted to. Re- keep a connection to India uh, for as long as, as long as it was possible for us to do so.
3: I I guess the family structure is very important and almost it was, uh, almost I grew up with the idea that it's the parents prerogative to help the children find their spouses. And since the parents know the children very well, I always thought they could probably come up with a better decision than perhaps I could on my own. And also there weren't too many opportunities (laughs) for dating and so forth. So I think as long as the children have the veto power, they are not forced into a situation. Uh, I think in parents doing the homework, before introducing potential eligible partners to their children, I think is a very good idea. And I think it works in any society, as long as there is not the pressure that they have to marry the person that their parents elect. And we certainly didn't have that pressure. Uh, And so to a large extent, it was our choices. Well, I would say it was our mother's choices.
2: The maintained maintain that while they could have ultimately vetoed their family's decision, there was certainly no love at first sight. I wanted like I wanted a tall guy, so I happen to be quite tall for an Indian woman. I'm like five six, um,
5: and you know I, I always thought I would marry somebody who was like six feet tall. That's what I used to dream about. And but you know that was kind of, that was not really a, a deep reason to not marry someone. Well,
3: obviously uh we each got a passing grade
5: my parents really liked him and a lot of it is family so our families are very um uh, i would say very similar from the same part of the, the country similar values and ethics and so i think that was super important
2: the sahotras have two children one of whom their son raj sahotra founder and executive director of momentum education in houston has a decidedly different take on love he reflects on how his upbringing first influenced his own perspectives on love, dating, and marriage. I think,
6: in terms of the romantic or or marriage sense, I think there was, and I don't know if this quote was said sort of how frequently, but it certainly came up as this notion of love will grow over time after you know an arranged marriage perhaps happens, and so that that was sort of the extent. I'm thinking in elementary, middle. You know kind of high school even that was sort of the extent to which the conversation revolved around love in, with regard to the marriage sense
2: over the years, Raj has found it challenging to reconcile his parents' view with his own. It's a debate that continues to this day
6: uh, you know I think that they they come at it from the perspective of what they have seen and they have seen in their own situation you know an arranged marriage where the focus was on aligning the family background, most importantly, kind of worked. And they see their friends from a similar generation, both back home in India and here, who have had a similar situation and it has quote unquote worked. And then I think there's a contrast with the quote American way of doing things where someone finds someone who they are compatible with directly and they see, well, 50% or whatever the number is of American marriages end up in divorce. And so the conclusion is, well, the family background way is superior and don't worry about the kind of love piece because that will come with time. That kind of comparison of American quote-unquote way versus Indian quote-unquote way, the misses is that, you want to consider both stability, of course, and compatibility, but also kind of the joy and the happiness. And I think the Indian way, quote unquote, kind of indexes more for stability and alignment of important characteristics, but doesn't index as much for joy or happiness. Whereas perhaps the, you know, Western way, indexes a bit more for that, at the risk of potentially not, not focusing so much on compatibility.
2: Can love be stable? Should it be? The fact is that almost half of American marriages end in divorce, so it's safe to say that the conventional route of dating before marriage isn't exactly cutting it. How, then, can we explain that statistics on arranged marriages report that only around 4-6% to 6% of these quote-unquote loveless relationships fail? Should we be treating marriage more like a business arrangement? How do we account for love, or even define it? In his famous work, The Devil's Dictionary, the writer Ambrose Spears defines it thusly. Love, noun, a temporary insanity curable by marriage. Perhaps that's too cynical. Perhaps, suggests Rajtahotra, a compromise in cultures can help bridge the proverbial divide between head and heart when we consider what love is or should be
6: and so for someone like me who has seen both the traditional indian mindset and the western approach it's about finding the best of both worlds and i take that perspective in everything in my life is how do i find the best of both worlds to have the strength of being someone who parents are one culture and is living in another culture because to me that's a big strength but only if you can draw on the best from both because it can become a weakness if you're sort of paralyzed and unable to go to each side because you're very unsure of where to go. And that's when it becomes a challenge. I think it is for many of us, you know, in high school or even in college. But I think as we, you know, get older, reflect more, and are better able to take the best aspects of both sides, it becomes a huge, huge advantage, actually.
2: It doesn't matter where you were born, how you identify, or from which culture you came. There is no accounting for fate. In the case of Jimmy and Deborah Lin, a last-minute change of plans has led to a lifetime of love and laughter. Well, sometimes laughter. Jimmy Yang Lin is originally from Taiwan. Age 11, he moved to Sydney, Australia to study violin at the prestigious Sydney Conservatorium. He turned 16, he moved to New York City to study under Professor Dorothy DeLay at the Juilliard School of Music. Today, Mr. Lin teaches at both Juilliard and the Shepherd School of Music at Rice University.
0: To Atlanta for a recital and you know as you can imagine the pianist who plays with me always needs a page turner.
2: Debbie Lin is originally from Taiwan and moved with her family to Atlanta when she was 17. Debbie is an accomplished pediatrician in her own right. I was
1: uh, a medical student at uh, Emory University at the time um, so um, my best friend or one of my best friends uh, was a page turner for the pianist um, she was a piano major herself, and I still remember it was uh, October 25th.
0: That The first page-turner had gotten ill that day, and she was my wife Deborah's friend, and Debbie has, has played the piano, and studied piano, so the page-turner asked her to step in for her, to sub for, for this page-turning duty. And of course, page-turning is a very, it's a terrible job because you don't, notice the page turner until he or she screws up. And then, you know, everybody suddenly turns the gaze to the page turner. It's so (laughs) embarrassing, you know? And the musicians get really angry at the page turner, but if it all goes well, we barely say a thank you to the page turner.
1: Because I was so nervous. I play piano, but I don't play that well. And, um, And this is not exactly a piano recital. So the pieces were violin pieces, so I was very, very nervous. So I said, you know what, when you rehearse, can I come and so practice? First of all, they probably never heard of anybody, page turning into rehearsal, okay? So I'm the only one who actually has rehearsed page turning. <laughs> so I did, I went there. And um, and then there was like two and three hours between the rehearsal in the afternoon and the performance, which is at 7.30 at night. So I w- it was, you know, it was too far to go back home and there was nothing to do in the concert hall. And, um, they were just sitting in the backstage, and, and so I was sitting there, and looking at the drinks, and, and, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, eating the food. And, and
0: I took one look at her and said, oh, wow, this is great. what <laughs> a nice person, beautiful gal. So we started chatting, you know, between the rehearsal and the concert, and so we, um, uh, we, we, I think hit it off okay, you know, that first time, and, um, And she asked for a photo to be taken with me. I even put my arm around her. I don't know what got into me, but clearly something was not quite normal. And, uh, (laughs) so I, um, wanted to, um, ask for her phone number. But being, you know, Asian, Chinese, whatever, you know, not so appropriate to ask, Hey, what's your number?
1: And so there was a reception after the concert, and, um... Yeah, I mean, I was very sure, so he probably, you know, asked around, like, who's this girl? I mean, she's a boyfriend. And so so, so he found out that I was single and available, so he decided he wanted to ask me out.
0: So at the end of the reception, I waved goodbye to her, and then I, I went back to the hotel with my pianist, Li Jian and I said, oh, man, you know, Deborah, she's a lovely girl, and I'd love to, you know, ask her out, um, but I don't have her phone number. And suddenly he said, Oh, you want a number? I have it. She gave it to me. (laughs) So he pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket and says, here, you can have it. (laughs) So I said, okay, I think, I think maybe that's a very smart lady after all, you know? She didn't want to be too obvious in giving me her phone number. She gave it to my pianist instead.
1: And somehow he got a hold of my phone number and he called me that night. And of course, you know, he called me and and I was like, What? he, so, he, I think this way he says I if I quote it correctly. Doctor, doctor, my head hurt.
0: I don't know if you watch Monty Python. One of the favorite, you know, was this uh John Cleese character with you know looks really dumb and he'll have a handkerchief turn twirled around for going to the head and he'll come into a room, you know He's a doctor, uh my brain hurts <laughs> So I thought I'll break the ice by saying, you know, since Debbie's a doctor, so I said, hey, doctor, my brain hurts.
1: I think it's probably a quote from uh, 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 the Oz, right? Wizard of Oz. Uh, I think one of those. And of course, I have no sense of humor. I I said, oh, you have meningitis, you know, hang up.
0: (laughs) And Of course, she didn't get it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, okay. Whoops. <laughs> that's either starting on the wrong foot, or maybe she, it's better that she knows that I have a really warped mind to start with. Maybe that's good. <laughs> but needless to say, we, we 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 still spoke for over an hour. So so that probably was okay. <laughs> One,
3: two, three, two, two,
2: three, three, two, three. Will the sun one thing we can be certain of is that love cannot always be relied on to get the facts. This is one of the beautiful things about love. There is a truth to it, a truth stronger than culture, or tradition, or even memory. Love is immediate, but it can linger for a lifetime. Who are we when we are in love? Does being with someone we love make it easier to be our true selves, or does our true self only reveal itself once we have fallen in love? For many Asian Americans, it can be hard enough to architect an authentic identity when we are influenced by two or more conflicting cultural attitudes about what makes a good person, what makes a family, or how to characterize love. Comes as no surprise that we are at the end of our podcast and our ideas about what love is or what love should be are no more clearer than when we started love is elusive and it's avoided capture for this long perhaps it's better to let love keep doing its work that's because love is as expensive and as nuanced as each of us are as people Most of all, we hope these stories have illustrated, at least to some degree, the transcendent quality of love that travels over time and space to find us and unite us, whoever and wherever we are. Happy Valentine's Day, y'all. See you next time. Love, Asian America.